Welcome to this episode of King's Conversations. Today we're talking about an especially important topic, mental health. I'm joined today by Professor Simon Wesley, a professor at the Institute of Psychiatry, Psychology, and Neuroscience, and also a psychiatrist himself. Join us as we explore how psychiatry intersects our everyday lives. Hi, Simon. Thank you for being here. Great pleasure, Megan. So first, could you just kind of describe how you were came into the field of psychiatry? Well, in, in uh, Britain and many other countries, a psychiatrist has to be a doctor. So the first thing is, why did I do medicine? And frankly, I can't actually remember. I was about 15 or 16. It was a bit of a surprise because uh, I was better on the art side. And then so I went to medical school to be a doctor and do all the things that doctors do, like running around and using big kit and putting needles into people because, you know, that's what we do. But as I got older, I realized that actually I, I was more interested in the more social, human, psychological side of people and also the one great thing about psychiatry was that we had more time to spend with patients. Yeah. And the psychiatrists I met, I just felt were actually a bit more interesting than the other doctors, which is kind of unfair, but I did feel that way. Yeah. And um, they were the first doctors I met, remember this a long time ago, who knew the names of all their patients. And most doctors, those they didn't. Yeah. They would talk about things like, there's a good liver in bed seven, the medical students should see that. But the psychiatrist knew what the patient's name was. So... So I did more general medicine to prove I could do it. And then, um, then really, so I want to do psychiatry, which was unusual because it wasn't very popular. And yeah. I came to London and started at the Maudsley, and I've been there ever since. I was institutionalized as some of our patients. <laughs> uh, and with that, uh, over the course of your career as a psychiatrist, how has your understanding of like mental health evolved? <laughs> Well, if it has. <laughs> well, because I've come to the Maudsley, which is quite an academic center. Yeah. I then, for the first time, got interested in research, uh, which I hadn't been before. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm an academic and I, I trained in epidemiology, which uh, uh, because of COVID, I don't have to explain what that means now. <laughs> but for the first 30 years of my life, I had to tell everyone it's a study of populations. So we were looking, I was doing big studies, big yeah. population studies, um, particularly in the area of the kind of overlap of medicine and psychiatry. Um, so I was seeing patients at King's College Hospital, the, the mm -hmm. general hospital, and then also with the armed forces um, after Gulf War Syndrome came along and I started to work a lot with them and I still do. Um, it's not so much that, it, but things have definitely changed yeah. um, in the sense that now psychiatry for the first time is oversubscribed. So more medical students want to do psychiatry than we can find jobs for. Whereas oh. when I started, it was very much not like that at yeah. all. And you were regarded as, you know, you did psychiatry because you weren't good enough to do medicine, um, that kind of stuff. So people would always tell you things and, and they would say, I worked at Queen Square, which is the National Hospital of Neurology just around the corner from mm -hmm. here. And so I was a psychiatrist, a junior psychiatrist with lots of neurologists. And they would come up to you and say, I can't understand why a fellow like you does, you know, you seem a reasonable chap. That's how they speak, by the way. They probably still do. Um, you know, well, you, you, you're in psychiatry, none of your patients ever get better. And you're thinking, that's a bit rich coming from a neurologist in a yeah. neurology hospital, whereas actually in psychiatry, a lot of our patients get better, but it's slower. Yeah. And, and psychiatry does involve being a bit more patient. We yeah. don't get miracle cures. We don't, we don't get put on a pedal still for everyone to clap us and, and you know, that's you're not if that's what you want don't do psychiatry it's it's tougher yeah um less um 
you know, you're not, people don't look up to you in the way that they would if you said, I'm a neurosurgeon or I'm a cardiologist, yeah. et cetera. On the other hand, people are very interested in what you do. And most people have views on what you do. And they can understand the kind of issues that we deal with. So they can understand, you know, that we struggle with, you know, when is someone sad? And when does that become depressed? People can understand that. Yeah. When is a kid a bit, you know, bit, bit, I don't know, a bit eccentric, et cetera. But when does that move into Asperger's or autism or autism spectrum? Yeah. They may not use words like that, but they know what we're talking about. Yeah. And they know also the kind of ethical dilemmas we have. Is it right to treat people against their will? Now, they know exactly what that means. But if you talk to a neurosurgeon, you would say things like, you have an interesting job. And then you would say, yes, I do. And then you don't know what to say after yeah. that. You know, you're a bit stuck, really. So I say, do you know Henry Marsh? That's about all you can say. But in psychiatry, people do have views. And if you don't like that and you don't like being challenged and you don't yeah. like debate, you probably won't really like psychiatry. And now you can tell that I love that. <laughs> so I, I've really liked being a psychiatrist. But it's not for everyone. It really isn't. But if you do do it, I think it's a great and satisfying career. And I know a lot with conversations around mental health recently, we talk a lot about mental health, but then also in psychiatry, we talk a lot about mental illness. So yes. do you think, are those one and the same? Are those different? Ah, well, it's a very, <laughs> it's a, it's a very difficult question, Megan. Um, so mental illness is relatively easy to define because we have definitions that we change them, which annoys everybody, but we do. <laughs> But mental health is a bit like blood pressure. I mean, everybody yeah. has blood pressure. You yeah. have blood pressure. I have blood pressure. And sometimes it gets too high and you need to treat it. So mental health, we all have mental health. I mean, you can't not have mental health. I mean, what yeah. does that mean you, and, until you're dead? Maybe even beyond then, I don't know. Um, so it's used often as a euphemism when actually people are talking about, they by mental health, they mean poor mental health. Yeah. But they shouldn't really. Mental health is just how you and I are as we're talking today. Yeah. So I think sometimes it's used as a euphemism because people don't want the stigma of mental illness and mental disorder. They don't like the word disorder. Um, and of course, although stigma is much better than it was when I started, yeah. don't go around thinking it's gone away Yeah. because it hasn't. Uh, although having said that, in, in your generation, Megan, not mine, um, it's so different to yeah. what it was when I was growing up. I think maybe we can almost start talking about the fact it has gone away. When 80% when of King students will say they have mental health problems, that's not much stigma around. 50% yeah. of students at Cambridge in one college, my old college in fact, are having some form of counselling. Well, there's not much stigma around there then. Yeah. So maybe in that generation, your generation, mm -hmm. Maybe maybe we're almost over it, but not completely. But yeah, I feel like way. it becomes, at least with my friends and like my cohort, like mm -hmm. very normalized. Like, yeah. you know, oh, me and my therapist were talking, whereas yeah. a couple of years ago, it would have been very personal to mention my therapist. Yeah. And now it's like, oh, no, when I talked to my therapist, we talked about this and it's just part of a normal conversation if you do see a therapist. Yes, I, yes, I, I don't, I, I think it's, pretty clear and the, the issue often is how do I find a therapist because yeah. you know if if the numbers are as high as they are then you know we can't counsel or therapy our way out of the issues we have at the moment because it's just yeah. not enough we'd end up with half the population treating the other half a bit <laughs> like kind of psychoanalysts in Hampstead in the old days that's an old joke by the way but anyway <laughs> but 
Uh, I mean, what I don't like, and I do occasionally call students up on, is when, because I do teach students quite often, I enjoy mm-hmm. it. I don't know if they enjoy it, but I do. And, and then they'll say, well, I'm feeling a bit bipolar today. Now, yeah. I don't really like that very much, because what they really mean, what they usually mean is I'm having a bad day. Bipolar, I will then say, look, I'd rather, because bipolar is a quite severe illness. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and it's fairly specific. And, you know, with the greatest respect, I don't think you're having an episode of Bipolar today. Yeah. There's a famous film actress, I won't name her, but it's been in all the press, who said that um, she was not on set today because she was having a relapse of her bipolar, but she'd be back on set tomorrow. And then every psychiatrist in Britain is thinking, well, that's not Bipolar How that works, then, yeah. is it? <laughs> How does that work? Yeah. You know? So I'd rather we didn't do that. But everything else I'm perfectly okay with. Yeah, because I, I feel like the more it's normalized, then people they feel it's more okay to use those terms, but they use them incorrectly. Like, oh, I have OCD because I had to turn my light off twice. Or like, oh, I had a panic attack today, but it's just, you're feeling a little more anxious than usual, so. And and I think the reason that that people like me are uncomfortable about that is because if you inflate a concept, so it includes all normal emotions, okay, like feeling sad or being bereaved. All of us are going to be bereaved at some stage in our lives. This yeah. is not a psychiatric disorder, okay? <laughs> yeah. It's a normal human reaction. All of us are going to be sad. All of us are going to be frightened sometimes yeah. and get stressed. So, but if you inflate that, as chances of the exchequer will tell you, inflation leads to devaluation. Absolutely, yeah. And so you're devaluing, you know, the 20% of students at this university who do have mental disorders. Yeah. And, and that's, not a bad thing, because in, in, in back in my day, I try not to say that, but <laughs> when I started, you didn't see people with mental illness basically didn't get to university. Yeah. And now they do. And that's good because university is good for mental health. Yeah. But if you if we're all like, if we say all of us that, then that's not really helping people who've got do need special assistance, maybe, do need to be taking medication. You know, that they do, you know, they need more support yeah. than, than others. And you're slightly devaluing that. So I'd rather that we kept our labeling to, uh, uh, to those who've got features of what we will call mental disorders. Yeah. And, and remember also that a lot of the people, when they say, you know, uh, when, when they put their hands up, they say, who's got mental health problems? I didn't used to be able to do that, but now you can. Yeah. And people say that. But when they start talking to you and, um, then they, what they're actually often telling you is stories of homesickness or loneliness or exam stress, things like yeah. that. And, and the danger there is those are not going to respond to antidepressants. Yeah. And they're not really going to respond to therapy, most of them. Yeah. You know, exam stress would be about other things. So, so you've got to be careful that you don't professionalize things so people end up receiving treatments that they don't need. Yeah. I, and I guess with that too, there has been talk of a rise of anxiety among young people is that a trend that you feel like is actually being seen or do you feel like it kind of goes back to this devaluing of actual mm. mental Well, illness? it's a good it's a good question. I said at the start I'm an epidemiologist. Mm-hmm. So the boring boffin part of me does big studies <laughs> yeah. of the of random people in the population. Now, it'll come as a surprise to most people but the rates of most of our disorders have been pretty stable for 100 years. Okay. We've not seen a change in schizophrenia, in bipolar, in OCD, etc. We've seen a change in autism, but that's because we changed the, the diagnosis. Yeah. So then we've seen a big rise, but that's because we redefined it and the prevalence shot up from 2 to 10%. So it's actually been stable, with one exception. And the exception is that anxiety and depression as disorders 
So a de depressive disorder, not feeling sad, but yeah. depression. And anxiety, not feeling oh nervous, but actually having panic attacks every time you go into a supermarket or something yeah. like that. A defined disorder has gone up in one particular group, 16 to 24-year-old young women. Interesting. And it's gone up from around 18 to 26%. Wow. Now, that may not seem very much, but in population terms, that's quite a big change. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's not really been seen very much in, in, in young men, a little bit, but not much. And it's not even been seen that much in under-16s. There has been a rise, but not as dramatic in over-16s. And the main rise since COVID is in eating disorders, so that's gone up as well. And that's the first time we've seen a real change. In, yeah. And this is populist. It's not help-seeking. This is with the diagnosis and community studies, etc. So that's the fact. Now, I'm going to put words in. You're about to ask me why. Yeah. You ask me yeah. why. <laughs> yeah. Like, have you discovered? I, I feel like it's multifactored. So there might not be a one why, but is there some sort of factors that you've identified? Well, we don't know. Okay. I mean, <laughs> But normally, if, if, if I'm giving a talk or something and then you turn to the audience and say, okay, here's the, you know, I don't use PowerPoint, but I can use it with my hands to say, look, it's really gone up. This is quite a substantial increase. We know the true rate has gone up. Why do you think it is? Invariably, I've never done it and someone doesn't immediately shout social media. That's what people default to yeah. is social media. Um, and so, but like you, you, you said it's probably multifactorial and... Everything in psychiatry is multifactorial. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, which is why it's so interesting. But so, so I think social media has been a little bit demonized, actually. And I think the impact of social media on mental health is not as great as people say. And, and um, in the really big studies of social media that uh, come out of Oxford, for example, really good. The con there is a contribution, but it's not very big. Yeah. And the biggest contribution to the mental health of young people and young adults remains what it always has been. Abuse, violence, poverty, issues like that. So child abuse, sexual abuse, bullying, huge contribution. Absolutely dwarfs social media. Absolutely dwarfs it. And most of it, by the way, before you say it, is not online. The bullying? Yes. I mean? Yeah, yeah. And so like more nice in-person bullying versus yeah. Yeah. like the and online. And that has a lifetime effect. Yeah. on people's risks of developing mental health disorders when they grow older. So maybe social media does make a contribution, but, but it is not in the same level as those other classic things that we know about but don't yeah. always know what to do with. And I think there's a little bit of a kind of moral panic here of blaming the medium for the message, Yeah, which is nothing new. Every yeah. time we have a new technology, so television when it came along, um, was thought to be ruining family life as we know it. It yeah. was addictive. It was dangerous, needed to be banned. We needed to limit the hours that our children saw TV. Everything that we're now talking about social media, 50 years ago, we talked about t television. Yeah. 100 years ago, we talked about newspapers. Interesting. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, and we talked about, you know, a very famous author wrote a piece and he said, uh, the problem with technology is it leaves us with no time to think relax and be ourselves. Now that sounds very modern, doesn't it? Yeah. But actually now it's Stefan Zweig writing in 1942 about the, you know, the collapse of the civilization that he belonged to, the Jewish culture in, mm -hmm. in, in uh, Vienna and Germany. So that's what he was writing about. But, um, but it just sounds so modern and so obviously about social media, but it isn't. 
Yeah. So it's also a thing we tend to think that things are getting worse and then people of my generation age blame it on some new technology that wasn't around when we were young. Yeah. So we're very suspicious. And with social media, I know you mentioned like it being demonized. Yes. And like I guess in the fact that it's blamed a lot for some of this rise in mental health disorders. Mm. I know a lot of people when they talk about social media, they talked about the like addictiveness of it mm. from that standpoint. Is that something that you've like have seen in the studies of actual addictiveness or is that kind of Well, yeah, it, it's talked about addictiveness, but not in the way that heroin is addictive. So it's okay, a different yeah. form of addiction. And, you know, at the moment, people talk a lot about dopamine, the social yeah. media. And, and it's true. It causes a small rise in dopamine. It's not, it's not a, it's, people say, oh, well, you know, it's the pleasure hormone. And, and, but actually, that's just not true. Dopamine isn't. <laughs> it's something that you have. And if you don't have it, you die. So you need dopamine to be alive. Um, but the hit that you get from cocaine and heroin is about a thousand times more than the hit that you get from gaming, using social media, et cetera. And it's actually, the, the, the transgender itself is about expectancy, actually. It's not about pleasure. It's yeah. just about preparing you for something different. And I know, so... Gambling is another one. Yeah. yeah. And with mental health in general, there's a lot of myths. Yes. And one of the myths, which I think kind of ties into social media, mm -hmm. because I love TikTok. And I, when I scroll on TikTok, sometimes there'll be something that says, oh, a trigger warning. Mm. And I think there's a myth surrounding this whole idea that trigger warnings are needed, that they're helpful. Um, what, what do you think about trigger warnings? <laughs> okay. I should say, by the way, I, I do accept that there have been cases where social media, particularly Instagram, has had definitely, clearly, directly uh, bad effects on, on someone. Okay? Uh -huh. There have been famous cases, etc. Everything has side effects. Yeah. The question isn't, does it have a side effect? It's what's the, the, the difference between benefits and risk? Yeah, and like there a risk is risk to ratio. social media. I'm not stupid. There are risks <laughs> to social media. Yeah. I would say the benefits outweigh them. I don't think we could possibly exist without it now. Yeah. I wish we'd had it when I was at university. I'm sure I would have had a better sex life than I did. <laughs> um, but, you know, and getting rid of it yeah. is like a bit like being King Canute. You know, yeah. you're just you know, like that. So it's about the balance. Yeah. And, and you know, if I tried to tell my kids, you know, right, I, you know, you've done two hours, I'm going to take the phone off you. Uh, yeah, that's going to go down well. So going back to your, you know, the question, tr trigger warnings, which are also part of a similar thing. I mean, just from the the boring academic perspective of uh -huh. what a trigger warning is, okay, yeah. it's warning you that something might be coming that might make you feel anxious, okay? Yes. Now, the problem with that is what is the problem with that, okay? Because, okay, so you now avoid it. Yeah. Something's going to come up that you might not like. So you might not go to that lecture or you might not do this or the other. But we're going to assume that whatever it is, is something you're going to encounter again yeah. and again and again. And the more you avoid it, the basic laws of psychology are the more anxious you get each time. So far from reducing your anxiety, all it does is means the next time that you encounter something that you want to, you know, oh, no, I might not like that you'll get even more anxious about it. That's yeah. just basic standard Pavlovian conditioning, really. Yeah. And when we treat people with actual anxiety disorders or PTSD or mm -hmm. panic attacks, et cetera, we don't say to them, look, um, I'm going to talk to you because I'm a psychiatrist, I'm a counselor, but I'm not going to talk to you about the one thing that you're frightened of in case that makes you anxious. Yeah. Well, that would be stupid. 
You know, it would be really stupid because you then, you know, you're not going to, if they've got a flying phobia, we're going to talk, eventually we're going to take you up in a plane. If you've got agoraphobia and you get panic attacks in a supermarket, we're going to tell you how to breathe properly and we're going to go through what cognitions go through your brain. You think you're going to die or do this or run out or do all the things that, you know, you're terrified of. But eventually, we're going to take you into a supermarket. That's what we're going to do. Yeah. We're going to do it in stages, obviously, bit by bit. And I've treated a soldier who shot a child by mistake and was serving for the British Army. I'm not going to say to him, the one thing we're not going to do is talk about that, the event. Of yeah. course we are. But we're not going to do it straight away. Yeah. So the trigger warning on, is actually, I think, unnecessary. The worst thing that can happen is, yeah, you do get anxious. But then, you know, after a while, anxiety will habituate. And so then you might even talk about, well, why did I get anxious? Yeah. And what was it that made me feel so anxious? And maybe, maybe I do actually need some help on this. Yeah. So do you think it kind of goes, instead of avoiding the issue, it goes to how are mm. we coping with it? Yeah, it is. Um, and uh, yeah, why, why, do, why do I think this will upset me so much that I can't actually look at it? Why, you know, is the title of a, a lecture, you know, so, ooh, oh, no, I don't want to do that. And of course, you know, in some subjects, including medicine, we yeah. do deal with disturbing Absolutely. images yeah. and issues. Well, you're not going to be able to avoid them. Either we sort it out now or we do it when you're a junior doctor or something. Then by that time, actually, it could be quite a problem. Yeah. Well, and with medicine, mm. a lot of times when something traumatic happens, like say you are running, like you're doing CPR on a patient, a lot of times we talk a lot about debriefing. <laughs> How do you feel about a debrief no, of like a traumatic event? You're, te you're teasing me now, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> All right, okay. Yeah, I mean, again, uh, a few years ago, there was a vogue for something called psychological debriefing, single session psychological debriefing. And it was used for virtually everything. And you, um, of a certain age, you will remember news, every news program that had, you know, an accident or a terrorist bomb or a plane crash, etc. And invariably, the newscaster would end up by saying, and trained counselors are at the scene. It was a standard word, trained counselors at the scene, to make us feel better yeah. that people were being looked after. And what they did was they would talk to you straight away and they'd say, how was it for you? What did it feel like? And you'd say, you know, seeing someone blown up in front of you and you'd say, oh, terrible and awful. And, and then they'd say, okay, it's very, this is a real terrible situation and you might feel this way and this might happen to you. And if it does, here's a number to phone. Yeah. Okay. And then they wouldn't see you again. It was single session. And for years, people like me, who are naturally skeptical, <laughs> were thinking, well, why are we doing that? Yeah. You know, what, what, what is the purpose of that? And um, does it help? And we tried to do trials, but we weren't allowed to because people said, well, I mean, I mean, you know, it's not a drug for God's sake. I mean, you know, maybe, maybe you're right. Maybe it doesn't work, but it can't do any harm. Eventually, people started doing those trials. And what turned out was, first of all, it definitely didn't work. It didn't reduce the rate of PTSD, which is what we were trying to prevent, okay? yeah. post-traumatic stress disorder. In fact, you were more likely to get PTSD if you had this intervention straight after something bad happening. Interesting. Well, more than interesting. It's yeah. absolutely fascinating, isn't yeah. it? Because then we could start to ask the question, well, why? Because if we hadn't done the trials, everyone said, well, I mean, you know, I don't believe you. How could it possibly make you worse? And then we can start to think about why did it make you worse? And I think it's various things. One is it's just too early. Yeah. You know, we have defense mechanisms mm -hmm. for a reason. Some things are just too horrible straight away. Yeah. 
There's a good neuroscience uh, point to this as well, that the memories that you lay down immediately are much more difficult uh, to cope with, really. Yeah. And they might move into kind of what we call flashbacks and things like that. Then there's a sociological reason, which is that, wait a second, we've agreed that it's right that you should feel terrible. That yeah. you can't sleep and your blood is, you know, you're, you're shaking and you feel tremulous and scared, all this kind of stuff. Yeah. It's not a disorder. So why do you need any form of treatment? And the natural history is to make you better anyway. Most people get better. And then the final view is it goes in the way of doing what everybody has done since time immemorial. How do you deal with trauma? Well, you deal with it by, guess what you do? You talk, you talk to your friends, your family, your colleagues, possibly your GP, Padre, you know, Iman, whoever it is. You talk to people who know you, knew you before, knew you afterwards, when you're ready to do that. Yeah. And when we do studies of people after disasters, we did after London bombs, after the Salisbury poisonings, things like that, that is what 95% of people do 95% of the time. 95% of the time, it works fine. People like me only get involved when, we don't quite know when, maybe two months, three months later, you're still in that, you're not sleeping, you're still not eating, you're maybe turning to drugs or alcohol, you're not going to work. Then people like me, should see you because we have things we can do at that point, but yeah. not straight away. And it still happens, but it's getting better now. We, we, we try not to professionalize the fact that you feel awful, that you've been caught up in something terrible. And I think that kind of goes with a lot of the rise of a lot of online counseling and like therapy that we definitely saw, especially during COVID when yeah. it wasn't allowed to be face-to-face. -face. Um, do you feel... I feel like that's helped with access, but is it too much access? Like, does everyone need to be in therapy? Well, okay. <laughs> but remember what I was saying? I didn't say that you, should, you shouldn't yeah. seek help. I just said it's not helpful to do it straight away. So we're talking about yeah. hours and days after. And this is for specific traumatic events. COVID yeah. was a, a what we call a chronic threat. Yeah. It wasn't a specific event. So I was being very – and I also said – you definitely should seek help if you're still feeling that way three months later because then we know our treatments work. Yeah. They don't make you worse. They don't work in everyone. Of course they don't. And some people, our treatments actually still make worse. Yeah. But we get more people better than we make worse. Going on to the online stuff. So, yes, I mean, we, we for, for these kind of disorders, we went 100% online very mm -hmm. quickly, just like the rest of the medicine did. Yeah. And it was pretty successful. So... Um, for the kind of talking therapies, yeah. which is what we're talking about, um, it actually worked quite fine. You could, as soon as people got familiar with the technology, it took some people like me a bit longer than <laughs> others, but actually online worked very well. And, you know, people didn't need to come to see you, which was not necessary. Yeah. And we'd already knew that the results of online treatments, it wasn't the first time this had been done, by the way. It was just yeah. when we did for everything. We know that they are reasonably successful, reasonably sim similar to therapists delivered. And they do best when there is a therapist around. Yeah. Um, that we knew before uh, COVID, but we just never scaled it up to the level it was. So it's not 100% online. People still quite like to know there is a human being there, maybe at the yeah. start, maybe at the finish. Um, so now, but that's one bit of what we do. Yeah. It's not the only thing that we do. Yeah. And there are other bits where... Um, in crisis care, home treatments, mm -hmm. um, and anything at the severe end of the spectrum, for example, using the Mental Health Act. Yeah. Uh, you can't do that online. 
You, yeah. you literally can't. It's, if you've ever seen this happening, it's very distressing. It's something yeah. we do very rarely, but we do do it. And that's you can't digitalize that. Yeah. You can digitalize the forms. Yeah. But the process, no. And the other thing is that, I mean, I do, this is, this is really about my belief, actually, but I do know that people, when they're in the crisis of their lives, yeah. which is when they finally come to see a psychiatrist with something bad, severe, mm -hmm. they still want to see a human being. Yeah. And it may be irrational, actually. It could be that AI is better. Yeah. But they still want to see a human being. So I know we've talked a lot about social media, but what about other types of media? How does that influence our understanding of mental health and our experience with mental illness yeah. and mental health? Yeah, okay. Uh, what comes to mind uh, from that is, um, I, I don't, I've mentioned I do quite a lot of work for the British Armed Forces, uh -huh. and I haven't mentioned, but I'm, I'm quite a history buffer. If I'm alive <laughs> again, I'd probably be a historian. So we, we did a study, and um, we were looking at shell shock. You've all heard of shell shock. Yeah. Um, the disorder that happened in the First World War. Uh, when it was first recognized. And there's a general view that people say, you know, yeah, we used to call it shell shock, now we call it PTSD. Yeah. So we were kind of interested in this. And was that true? So we looked at hundreds of war pension records and, and soldiers used to write out when they wanted a war pension, what had happened to them in their own words. So yeah. They weren't interviewed, they just wrote what it was. And, and they're very moving. And one I remember vividly was um, a man applying for a war pension. All he said was, I was blown up by a shell. They dug me up two days later at Arras. And ever since then, I cry all the time. And I'm not a man. That's all he said. And nothing else. And that was his application. And you have to think about that for him. What's he saying? Well, first of all, he was buried alive. You yeah. know, buried alive for two days. Pretty traumatic. I think everyone Absolutely. would agree with that. Yeah. And then, you know, and he, then he, the two symptoms he talked about are very un-Victorian, Edwardian, very unmasculine, crying all the time. You know, men weren't supposed to do that. So yeah. We're talking about, you know, 1914 to 18. And I assume he was talking about impotence. I can't be sure, but maybe he was. So he was admitting to two things. But what he didn't say, and nobody said, was, and meanwhile, I'm back at home now, but when the local farmer goes out shooting... Every time I hear it, I'm back in Arras. I'm back in the trenches. Yeah. I'm having a flashback, which is now the standard symptom of PTSD. Yeah. You know, I'm walking down a street, a car backfires, I'm back in Vietnam. Yeah. In clear consciousness, not a nightmare, nothing like that. Now, why didn't he say that? Why didn't any of them say that? We found, I think, one. Why didn't they say that? And it's not stigmatized. I mean, there's yeah. nothing, if he's prepared to talk about impotence and crying, why wouldn't he say or, you know, the new cars are now appearing, car backfired, and, you know, I'm back there again, and I, I you know, I'm, I'm shaken by it, and I scream and run away and all this yeah. stuff. Well, we don't know. We're pretty clear that they didn't, because I can't think why they wouldn't have said something. They talk about nightmares, they talk about sadness, um, all sorts of things. And our idea, and it's only an idea, yeah. is that after the war is the era of mass cinema, yeah. Another new media that really takes off in a way we can't imagine now. Everybody yeah. goes to the cinema all the time. Average person will go three times a week. So even in 1940, during the Blitz, there were two billion visits to the cinema right. when it was dangerous. Yeah. Two billion. And if you look at the films of the time, they start to use flashbacks because it's a very, very cinematic thing to do. Yeah. And if you think of 
virtually every film Steven Spielberg has ever made, yeah. <laughs> Saving Private Ryan, begins. The whole thing is the flashback of yeah. Private Ryan going to the war cemetery. The whole thing is a flashback. Yeah. And plenty of other films because it's very cinematic. Uh, and you and and you take you back in time. You, you see the and and Old Quiet on the Western Front. Yep. All of those famous films depend on flashbacks. Did that itself change the nature of traumatic memory? So interesting. It, it wasn't that the memory that that soldier, the first soldier I mentioned, yeah. wasn't traumatic. Of course, it was traumatic. By the way, they didn't have the word trauma. By the way, trauma meant just physical. So he wouldn't have used the words. It was very traumatic. Yeah. That's a late 20th century word. If he'd said huh. something dramatic, he meant losing his leg or something. Yeah. But could it be that the constant repetition that you see in films um, changes how people go back to their war memories? I don't know. You don't know. Yeah. I could be completely, it's not just me, myself, and uh, my friend, the historian, we wrote the paper together. But it could be that. You can't prove me wrong, so it's absolutely perfect research, isn't it? <laughs> but it's very interesting. Yeah. And it also shows that in psychiatry, our disorders are not static. They change yeah. according to culture, media, events going on around us, all these things, which is why psychiatry is so much more interesting than the rest of medicine, basically. Yeah, I mean, that's why the DSMs are always being updated, I well, think, yes. you know? Always, uh, always yeah. new updates. <laughs> Don't get me started on that. That's also to make money for the American Psychiatric Association. Oh, also fair, yeah. yeah. I know it that's is, That's a yeah. whole other conversation, but still constantly changing. Uh, so. I know, I know. <laughs> they, they keep bringing these new disorders, you know, like answering back to your parents' disorder, and that's a new one, and coffee drinking addiction, that's another one. I would probably... Yeah, but that. they don't. And of course, what they don't have is they've been addicted to guns. Oh. Why, do, why don't they have that? <laughs> why don't they have that? Anyway, Great I'm question. Sorry. Great question. I know. I know. I'm just teasing. <laughs> I'm teasing you. Ignore it. But anyway, it shows that culture affects the disorders we deal with. Yeah. Eating disorder is another example. And, and some. Um, and I just think that just makes it just so much more interesting. It's Absolutely. Not, not just molecules. Not just our brains, very important that they are. It's also society around us and the cultures that we live in. Yeah, it kind of goes from you're taking the science of medicine and breaking in the art of medicine too. So. Well, the history of medicine, I suppose. And that yeah. too, yeah. yeah. Uh, so just kind of talking about online and AI, we did have a student question um, that I will play for you. With the age of AI and digital technologies, do you think that the role of a mental health professional will become obsolete in the future? <laughs> Good question, Ida. Um, I don't think so. Um, because I, I, th I think fundamentally there is something about the interactions that we seek with humans. Yeah. We can do certain things online, et cetera. But in the end, you know, I'm trivializing slightly now, but I don't notice that the cafes, pubs, bars, and clubs of London are now empty because everyone yeah. is doing it with either AI or um, social media. They're clearly not. Yeah. Okay, so people still want the human presence, particularly when they're in deep, deep distress, yeah. which they've never felt before. And I do tell medical students, one of the things about psychiatry, when, when you do it, you'll have that amazing privilege when someone tells you something they've never told anyone before. Yeah. And then you'll realize what it is to do, what we do for a living. Mm -hmm. So I don't think that will happen. And if I was a medical student listening to this, I don't think now I'd do radiology. <laughs> and I don't think I'd do dermatology. And I don't think I'd do pathology because I think those... There'll be, there'll be some need still for some human intervention, but I think it will be a fraction of what it is now. But I would still do surgery. I'd do general practice, and I'd certainly do psychiatry. Because yeah. I think um, those, you know, that, that 
human condition is still will, will be, and it's almost ineffable and unmeasurable, but I still think it's needed. Yeah. And with that, mm. obviously there's certain aspects that are not able to be replaced by AI, but what in your field do you think has the potential that well, like think, online or AI could? Well, I think once you've done the, the, the an assessment in my world is very complicated. Absolutely. And takes a lot of time. And so I mm -hmm. see new patients for two hours. Now, you know, most of my colleagues in the rest of medicine just, just. Yeah, they know, don't get that time. No, they don't get that time. And, and most of them don't even want that time. Yeah, yeah. They really don't. But in our world, that's the time you need because you're building up a picture of someone. Now you can do it online, but it's obviously mechanical. It's yeah. obviously following a set of questions that are preset. And mm -hmm. there's no judgment really. And, and in the end, you just have to make judgments as you get to know someone, just as you do yeah. when you're making a friendship. Now, this isn't a friendship, but when you're making yeah. a friend, you're making judgments on a whole series of issues. And when you're assessing a patient, you're doing all sorts of things, many yeah. of which you might yourself not even know what you're doing, um, but they're important. And, and, and then if, let's say, you end up thinking, okay, this person has uh, agoraphobia, for example, mm -hmm. very common disorder or a fairly simple case of PTSD after a road accident, very common uh, travel anxiety, yeah. travel phobia. I think you could very probably, yes, do an awful lot of that through AI in line. I think you could. Mm -hmm. um, but you've got to get to the starting post. Yeah. And um, I think that would be very difficult to, you know, to work through the way. Now, you know, events may well prove me wrong. Um, and, of course, the demand, because we're short yeah. of, of people, Absolutely. Um, will 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 come, but I'm still maybe romantic enough to think that people do matter in the trade that we're in. Yeah. Well, and I think that's an important thing to note is that people do matter. So yes, <laughs> in this age of AI. But thank you so much for your time, Simon. It's been a wonderful conversation, a very important one, um, and we're so lucky to get to have you on King's Conversation. So thank you for being here. Great pleasure, Megan. Nice to meet you. You too. Thank you.